So last week, Pastor Mark shared about rest and how we're able to take steps in our life to make sure that we're walking in a place of rest. Now, this morning, we're going to take a look at something that I don't believe we're able to live a life of rest if we don't quite get this aspect of our life right. And I don't want to poke fun at what you spoke at last week, Mike, because it was an incredible, incredible message. But I'm calling this morning, don't worry about the rest. No, it's nothing to do with what you spoke about, because rest is very important. But don't worry about the rest. And we're going to look at how to live a comparison-free life. How to live a comparison-free life. Because I don't believe that we can live a life in rest if we're living a comparison-filled life. Have you ever felt really good about yourself? Maybe you've just gotten a promotion or maybe you've been saving for a car for a long time and you're finally able to make that purchase and you're driving and you are feeling on top of the world. You are so excited. You are so ready. And then someone pulls up next to you with a better car or bigger car or faster car. And immediately that feeling of elation turns to dissatisfaction. It turns to, ooh, what now? I was really excited about this. Maybe you got a promotion at work and you were so excited and you were ready for this new position. And then you look around you and you see, oh, that friend of yours, he's doing so well in his company or he's doing so well in his business. And suddenly you're feeling a little bit deflated. We can even do it with our children, with our parenting. We can go, wow, this is, this is going great. Kids are listening to us this week, going to bed on time. I feel like I'm flourishing. And then you look to your friends, kids, and you're like, why, why are they doing that? Why are my kids not doing that? And suddenly, a feeling that you were, you were living joyous, full, excited, you feel a little bit dis- deflated and even sometimes uh, a little bit jealous. My, my daughter, she's nearly four. Her name is Aria. And she had a hat day at school in September for spring, spring hat day. So each child had to go and go out and make their own hats. And they would wear them to school and they would walk in this little parade. Very cute. So the afternoon, Ari and I go out and we purchase a hat. She chose, she's quite um, dramatic. She chose this very large white polystyrene hat. I'm like, okay, you do, you girl. So we pick that hat and I tell her, go wild. She picks paint, she picks stickers. She's super excited. We go home. She spends ages making this hat. I mean, the the, the, the paint is so thick on that hat. It took like a full 24 hours for it to dry or 12 hours for it to dry. And I mean, a chameleon would explode on that hat that had so many colors. It was a phenomenal hat. I thought it was great. She loved it. She was so excited. The next morning, it's all dry. We take it with to school. I pack in one or two extra hats we just had in the house because you know, you never know with kids, just some backups. But she takes her hat to school and she marches up to school. We walk in. We look at the playground. Now, all the other kids are kind of also wearing their hats. And we stand there. Now, she's three, hey? We stand there. She looks around. She looks at me. She goes, Mom, I'm not wearing this hat today. And she just hands it back to me. And I stand there, and I look around, and I realize what she's seeing. She's seeing these elaborate designs, this paper mache hats with like 3D butterflies coming out of them. I mean, there's no way the kids did these hats. Uh, But they look amazing. They could win awards. And at three years old, without anyone teaching her, without anyone saying a word, she compared what she had to that which she saw around her, 
and that what she was so excited about and so excited to wear and take part became something that was not good enough. That comparison immediately robbed her of the joy of that moment. And yes, I can tell her, and I did tell her, your hat's beautiful, why don't you wear it? You, you look lovely. And well, she was not fooled. She's like, no, mom, I'm sorry, I'm not wearing this. So I pulled out one of my extras that I had, had in the car. But it might seem like a little frivolous story or it might seem like something that, oh, well, now as adults, you know, we wear what we want. But it's something that's so true in our lives, that feeling of comparison. And we do it daily, whether it's what we eat, what we wear, where we, where we go, who we see, where we are in our career, where we are in our marriage, where we are in life stages. Oh, do you have a, are you married yet? Oh, do you have a kid yet? Oh, do, there's comparison in all of those things constantly. And something that has brought all of those things so much more to the forefront in the last decade is social media. I mean, a decade ago, you couldn't know what your friend was packing in her child's lunchboxes. Now you can find out within five seconds. You can find out where someone had lunch. You can find out what they had for lunch. And you can compare it with your sandwich and go, ooh, it's not so great. You immediately at your fingertips have all the information. And ignorance was actually bliss in this sense, where we actually don't need to have all that information about what everyone's doing, what they're wearing, what they're driving, where they're going, constantly, because it breeds comparison. It cries out all the time for you to go, oh, well, what about me? What about me? What about me? The whole time you pull that comparison out. And a comparison-filled life will not be a life of rest, because you are constantly holding up what you have and feeling like perhaps it falls short. Now comparison, it's not always a negative thing. So the, the definition of comparison is to examine in order to note similarities and differences. To examine something to note similarities and differences. So if we, for example, look at Matthew 6 verse 26 in the NIV version, it says, look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns. And yet your heavenly Father feeds them are you not much more valuable than they? So this is a comparison. God is saying, are you worried about what you're going to wear and what you're going to eat? You're worried about my provision. But let me compare. Let me show you the birds of the air, how I look after them. And so how much more will I not look after you? So in that sense, a comparison can be positive. But I think a lot of the time in our cases, human nature, it's on the other side. It's on the negative side. It's the side that makes you feel dejected or discouraged. And this started right at the beginning, right at the beginning. It's not anything new. If we go right to the start of Scripture, Eve in the Garden of Eden, the fall of man, that was a comparison. If we look at Genesis 3 verse 5, also in NIV, it says, For God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. That's a serpent talking, the, the snake talking to Eve saying, oh, compare yourself, compare yourself to God and see you're falling short. He's got all the wisdom, the knowledge of good and evil. Eat from this, you'll be more like him. It's comparison. She compared herself and that caused her to want to walk out and take that apple so that she could be more like God, so that she would not fall short. The fall of man started with that feeling of comparison. We even see it in a case where we really think we wouldn't. 
the disciples, 12 of God's chosen. I mean, these are like, you know, cream of the crop. If you wanted to be in this gang, this is the gang you wanted to be a part of. You are walking right alongside Jesus. You are seeing everything firsthand. What an amazing group to be a part of. You would think that they are absolutely elated and so excited, but yet they find themselves comparing. We'll see here in Luke 22, verse 24, they're arguing who's the best. The message version puts it like this. Within minutes, they were bickering over who of them would end up the greatest. But Jesus intervened. Kings like to throw their weight around and people in authority like to give themselves fancy titles. It's not going to be that way with you. Let the senior among you become like the junior. Let the leader act the part of the servant. Who would you rather be? The one who eats the dinner or the one who serves the dinner? You'd rather eat and be served, right? But I've taken my place among you as the one who serves. So here, the disciples who are, I mean, I can't imagine a better place. And they're even turning towards each other and going, this isn't, this isn't good enough. I want to be the best of the 12. Who's going to be the greatest among us? They're immediately comparing their gifts, their skills, what God has called them to be. Even in that amazing position, they found something to compare themselves with to each other. And Jesus immediately steps in and says, whoa, whoa, whoa. Let me just show you that this is not the life of rest. Immediately stop comparing. Stop that comparison because it's going to rob you. And he teaches them from starting this moment. Now, it seems that comparison is something within us, human nature. But just because it might be something a part of human nature, it doesn't have to rule us. It could be something that's in us, but it doesn't have to rule us. Because when Christ comes into our lives, He shows us this better path. He shows us it doesn't have to be that way with you. Now, it may seem pretty impossible in this day and age to never compare yourself in any way and let it affect you negatively. But 2 Corinthians 10 verse 12 says, in all of this comparing and grading and competing, they quite miss the point. And the um, Christian Standard Bible says it this way, but in measuring themselves by themselves and comparing themselves to themselves, they lack understanding. Now, what is it that we don't understand when we compare? What is it that the point that we miss? And that's what we're going to look at this morning. The three aspects that Jesus teaches us on how we can apply to our lives to make sure that we don't fall into this comparison trap anymore. How the abundant, joyful, great life that he has promised us and given us does not get defiled by the little fox like comparison because it's something that can creep in so quickly and do so much damage. And there's three aspects that Jesus teaches on in his word that we're going to look at this morning that I believe you can apply to your life and your circumstances from today to make sure that you do not get robbed by this comparison trap anymore. So the first aspect that Jesus teaches on is that we need to fix our gaze. We need to fix our gaze. Where we look, it is vital to know where we're going to focus. And this takes us to a a story that happened in Numbers 13. And you might be familiar with it. I'm just going to give you a bit of backstory. Here, God asks Moses to send out men to explore the land of Canaan. 
and he asks one leader of each tribe to go out and get the lay of the land, essentially. Go out in Canaan, please, get the soil samples, tell me what the people are like, are they strong, are they weak, do they have big armies, do they have small armies, what are the soil like, and the crops, bring samples. I need just the lay of the land to know what we're dealing with. So he sends out these 12 leaders uh, to go out into the land. And they're out for a bit, and they take some samples, and they come back. And this is what they have to say. Numbers 13, verse 27. We went into the land to which you sent us, and it does flow with milk and honey. Here is its fruit. But the people who live there are powerful, and the cities are fortified and very large. We even saw descendants of Anak there. So here these, these leaders, they're pretty freaked out. They have gone out, and they're worried and they're scared, and they're intimidated about what they've seen. They've seen these fortified cities, they've seen these big, strong armies, and they're worried, and they're concerned. But then Caleb interrupts them in verse 30. Then Caleb silenced the people before Moses and said, we should go up and take possession of the land, for we can certainly do it. We should go up and take possession of the land, because we could certainly do it. These are the same people seeing the same set of circumstances. They saw the same um, uh, fortified cities. They saw the same armies. They saw the same strength in the people. But whereas the one has gone, whoa, whoa, no, we can't. Caleb goes, we can certainly do it. And then in verse 31, it carries on. But the men who had gone up with him said, we can't attack those people. They are stronger than we are. And then we jump to verse 33. We seemed like grasshoppers in our own eyes, and we looked the same to them. So two accounts, two very different reports. What's the difference? What they were looking at. The first group, they were focusing on the people in front of them, the armies, the strength. Caleb, Caleb was focusing on all that God had done before. He was focusing on God's strength, on God's power, and everything he saw in front of him with his human eyes paled in comparison with the power he knew that was in Christ. We can certainly do it, he said. You see, if you focus on problems, there's fear. But Caleb focused and saw an opportunity, and that brought an eagerness and an excitement for the adventure. Your gaze determines your guts. Your gaze determines your guts. Where you're going to look, that's going to determine the amount of confidence you have. If you're looking at what's right in front of you, you're seeing problems, you're seeing challenges, you're only focusing on those, you're only comparing your circumstances, what you have to those problems and issues, you're always going to feel like it's falling short. You're always going to feel a lack of confidence. If your gaze is on Christ and what He's done in your life and what He's pulled you through from before, what He's done for others, His power, His glory, His grace, nothing you see, no problem you encounter, no circumstance you compare your own life to is going to see like too much. Your gaze determines your guts. Because that type of comparison, it cuts confidence. Comparison cuts confidence when we do it like that. What stood out for me so clearly in this verse that I've never seen before actually reading this passage was the fact that the first group said, we seemed like grasshoppers 
in our own eyes and we looked the same to them. They didn't say, we, seem, we must have seemed like grasshoppers to them. They said, in our own eyes, we seemed like grasshoppers. And so it must have been the same to them. If you view yourself as a grasshopper, people are not going to see you as something else. It is up to you to fix that gaze, to put that gaze on Christ, on who He has called you to be. That Those songs in worship this morning we sang that I am who He says I am. Who He says I am is the real me. When you focus on those things, on those qualities, then you know that nothing, nothing can come between that. And you need to view yourself as that, as a strong, mighty leader of Christ who is walking in the goodness and the grace that He has called you in. Because then other people will start seeing that too. But if you view yourself like grasshoppers, then, well, we assume that others are going to view us like that too. It started with their gaze. And when their, their eyes weren't fixed in the right place, they almost lost the, the war before they even fought. Let that not be us. Let, that, let us fix our gaze and our sight on Christ and His goodness and His grace and His mercy. Let us not compare our problems and our issues to what we see and our own strength and our own power, but let us view ourselves as a strength and the might of Christ within us and that we're able to, to conquer anything. So the first is to fix our gaze. Secondly, we need to focus on grace. Focus on grace. You see, when you eh, compare yourself or your circumstances to someone else's and it seems lesser than, some bitterness can come into our hearts. God, why do they have that? Why are they driving that? Why are they living like that? Why do they get to eat lunch at that spot? Well, let me also just tell you that social media is just a snippet of people's lives. And they could be eating lunch at that place, but at night they've blown the whole budget and so they're sitting at home eating toast, but they don't post that part. So don't be fooled by what you see in those snippets. But there's sometimes a feeling of entitlement that can creep up and go, God, if you've done that for them, then you need to do that for me. If they're living like that, I need to live like that. If they have that, then I need to have that. And a bit of bitterness and entitlement can, can come into our hearts. And it questions, and it brings into question the idea of fairness. Fairness. And demanding what is fair of God and resenting others who is the object of our envy is just a recipe for disaster. I want to take us to a passage of Scripture now in Matthew 20 verse 8, which really touches on this topic of fairness. Matthew 20 verse 8, just to give you a bit of background before we start reading. So here is a landowner and he needs some help on his fields. So he goes out to the marketplace and he looks around and he sees a few people that don't have anything to do. They don't have work. So he says, please come help me on my field. Great, they say, they come. That's eight o'clock in the morning. At like 10 o'clock, he realizes he actually needs more hands. Goes back to the marketplace, finds another two guys the same thing. And he tells them all, every time he goes to the marketplace, I'll pay you a denarius for your day's work. 12 o'clock lunchtime, he needs more, more help. Goes back to the marketplace, gets more men. 3 o'clock, same thing. 5 p.m., goes back to the marketplace, gets more men. Now there's so many people working on the field. It's going well. 6 p.m., now it's, it's shut off time. It's clock off time. They're done with their day. And this is where we pick up. Matthew 20, verse 8 in the NIV. When the evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, call the workers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last ones hired and going on to the first. 
the workers who were hired about five in the afternoon came and each received a denarius. So when those came who were hired first, they expected to receive a little bit more. But each of them also received a denarius. When they received it, they began to grumble against the landowner. Those who were hired last worked only for one hour, they said, and you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the work and the heat of the day. But he answered one of them, I am not being unfair to you, friend. Didn't you agree to work for denarius? So take your pay and go. I want to give you, I want to give the one who has hired last the same as I gave you. Don't I have the right to do what I want with my own money? Or are you envious? Because I am generous. So the last will be first and the first will be last. Confession time, when I read that many years ago, I felt such a sense of injustice rising up with me when I read that passage of scripture for those poor workers. I'm a very fair person and when I see injustice, I love to, to help and to try and make things fair. Fairness is important to me. And so at the beginning of my spiritual journey, when I read this for the very first time, this feeling of injustice came up within me and I thought, God, you're a just God. You're a fair father. How come those poor people that have worked from eight until six got the same pay as the guy who pitched up at 5 p.m. and worked for an hour? Surely that's not fair. And it took me a while and God's revelation and grace in my life to realize that this story is not about the workers. This is about the landowner. From the perspective of the workers, yes, that seems unfair. But from the perspective of the landowner, that seems even more unfair. He is paying people the same amount who worked much less to him. And I realize that it is about the landowner, our landowner, our Christ, who came and gave his grace to us, eternal salvation, and gave that to us completely. And it's unfair. We don't deserve it. God's grace is not fair. We deserved to pay the price for our own sins. And yet God saw it fit that we do not have to. That would have been fair. But he is a God saying, no, I'm going to lean into this unfairness and shower you with grace and shower you with salvation and give you eternal life, an abundant life, despite what you've done. That is unfair. And so this morning, we celebrate the unfairness. We celebrate God's goodness and grace in our life because it is always undeserving on our part. We do not deserve that. And yet God has showered us with it. When we compare how much God has done for us compared to what we deserve, you realize that that is not fair and that is grace. And that is what the story teaches us. It's about not throwing stones when we're in glass houses. We are equally all undeserving of God's grace and yet He has showered us equally. We celebrate the unfairness. God is able to turn things on its head. And it was only when that revelation caught hold in my heart that I could read the story and understand God's goodness and grace in my life and celebrate the story instead of it causing frustration or confusion. Because confusion. when we fix our gaze on Christ, we fix our gaze on that which is important and not on that which we're comparing ourselves with to others every day then we can focus on His grace. It's grace that we're able to sit here this morning and share God's Word with each other. 
It's grace that we're able to have a phenomenal worship team and lift our hands in worship to an eternal Father who has asked nothing from us other than to say yes. That is grace. It's grace that you're able to sit in a seat here. It's grace that we're able to walk out of here and maybe have something to eat and have a community to go talk to and someone to pray with you. That is grace. And so when we focus on that grace, the comparison, the things that we don't have, pales in comparison to God's grace when we fix our gaze on that which we have and not what we don't have. And the third aspect we're going to look at this morning is to fill our hearts with gratitude. It's being grateful. So gaze, grace, grateful. Fill our hearts with gratitude. Imagine you have two children and it's the one child's birthday and then three weeks later, it's the other child's birthday. So it's close together. You go out, you buy them each a gift that they really want, but it's the first child's birthday first. And so we celebrate them. We have a cake, we sing, we give them this phenomenal present. They're super excited. The sibling is distraught. They, you pull them aside after the day and they're upset and they're angry and they're bitter and you're asking them, what's going on in your heart? And they say, well, you're so unfair. They get a gift, they get a cake, they get everything they want. You always put them first. You always give them exactly what they prayed for. Me, I get nothing. I'm sitting here, I get like a leftover slice of cake from their birthday cake. I get nothing. You're being an unfair parent. In that moment, that is what it feels like to the child. They don't know that three weeks later, they're getting exactly what they've wanted and dreamed and prayed for. But in that moment, they're only focusing on what they don't have and they don't realize the good gifts that their father and mother have prepared for them three weeks later. And sometimes that can be that way with us and God. Because when we start questioning, God, I've been praying and wanting this and and believing for this and someone else has gotten all of that, but I haven't yet. You don't know that what you need is coming. What you're praying for is coming. What you're trusting for is coming. It might not look like exactly what you thought you were praying for or wanted, but it's coming because God is a good, good father. But when we get caught in the comparison trap and we start blaming God, we start questioning his goodness, it enters into a place of distrust. And then we pull away from him and then it leads to a relational breakdown as it would with own parents of those children. So what do we do if you're right now in a moment where you're finding yourself a little bit bitter about something or waiting for something and you feel like God's not answering you or it's taking too long or you see someone else getting something you want? What do we do? Because we're human and it happens. We speak God's truths out in that season in faith, even when we don't fully understand or believe them at the time because our flesh decreases and our faith increases when we speak out those truths. Now, what does it mean to speak out those truths? Well, it means declaring scripture over yourself. God is a good, good father. He always fulfills his promises. You speak those things out every morning over your heart until you believe it. You worship, you sing the wonderful words in song over your soul, even your bitterness, pray over it, Fill it with songs of worship and celebrate with others and trust that yours is coming. Trust that your birthday gift, it's coming. But it's only when we're grateful and we fill our hearts with gratitude that that shifts. And sometimes we might not feel grateful for something, but continue speaking it out. Fake it till you make it. 
Jesus is a good, good father. He knows your heart. He knows you're trying. And so he will meet you where you're at. He will fill that bitterness with joy. He will fill your, fill your impatience with patience. He will take that from you and give you rest because he is a good, good father. Someone who can really teach us about the attitude of gratitude is someone called Paul. We're going to look at Philippians 4 verse 12. Paul had a a span of about 35 years in ministry. Of the 35 years in ministry, he was arrested multiple times for his faith. He was in jail three times, some of those quite lengthy times. He spent over five and a half years of his ministry time either in custody or waiting trial. He was in trouble a lot for the faith. And yet, this is what he says to the Philippians in 4 verse 12. I know what it is to be in need and I know what it is to, be, to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. And that is my prayer for you, for each and every single one of us this morning, that whether we have plenty or little, whether we look around and see what others have and it pales in comparison to what you feel you have, that you will be able to say the words that Paul said, I know what it is to have plenty and I know what it is to have want, but in all circumstances, I am content. I have found rest because I have fixed my gaze on Christ. I have focused on His grace because when you look for it, you see it everywhere. You know, those times in life where you suddenly maybe, I don't know, you're looking for a red car and suddenly everywhere you drive, you see red cars. It's the same thing with this. When you start focusing on God's goodness and grace, you can't help not see it everywhere, all the time. And then we need to fill our hearts with gratitude because gratitude, it squashes jealousy. It squashes bitterness. There's no root, there's no soil, there's no space in your heart for jealousy and bitterness to take root when all you have sown seeds are of gratitude and grace and your gaze is on Him. Amen. Can I ask you to stand with me this morning? I'd love to pray with you, please. Lord God, we come before you and we thank you for your goodness and your grace. We thank you, Lord God, that even when our human nature at times wants us to compare what we have and that tells us that our flesh is telling us that it's falling short, that what we have or what we've accomplished or what we've done or what we're currently doing is not good enough, that it does not measure up. I pray right now against those words in Jesus' name. I pray, Lord God, that those will be pulled up from their roots out of people's hearts and lives right now. I thank you, Lord God, that we are able to fix our gaze on you, on what you have done, what you are still yet to do. And when we do that, everything else pales in comparison. Thank you that we can focus on the grace, the grace that every single thing we've been given, every gift that we've been given, and every single person has received a gift, that that is from you, an unfair gift of you that we celebrate. And Lord God, lastly, we pray for gratitude to fill our hearts and our lives and our mouths. Let us speak gratitude every day. Let it become the language of our households that we are thankful for your goodness and for your grace. Because when we start thanking you, we cannot stop because of everything that you have done and that you're yet to do. And so Lord God, I pray right now for rest 
over everyone here in the North End building, for those watching online, for Kingfisher, for those in Kariha. Lord God, I pray right now for rest to fill their souls, for a comparison-free life, that we will not look around, but we will look up. We will not look around, but we will look up only to You and to Your goodness and to Your grace. And that we will speak words of thanks every day. So Lord God, we thank You right now for Your presence. We thank You for being with us this morning. We thank You for going out with us. I pray a blessing over each household represented. Everyone hearing this right now, Lord God. Thank You, thank You, thank You for all You've done and all You continue to do. You're an almighty Father who gives good gifts to His children. And we claim that this morning and celebrate that. In Jesus' Name we say, Amen. Amen.